Hello and welcome to another episode of Belltale Rugby. I am Neve Campbell and I am joined by our rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley and sports reporter Adam McKendry. So we're recording a bit later this week, but it's turned out for a very good reason, as there's been lots of breaking news today. That is Wednesday, the 17th of January, in case you're listening a bit later. So we're going to just go straight in with the six Ulster players who have been named in Andy Farrell's 34-man Ireland squad for the upcoming Six Nations. We'll also discuss the Toulouse result from last weekend on the back of that. But Jonathan, just to kick us off, there's a return to the panel for Nick Timoney for the first time since November 2022, while Ian Henderson... Tom Stewart, Tom O'Toole, Stuart McCluskey and Jacob Stockdale have also been selected. Is that, this kind of rhymes, have also been selected. Is that what we expected? <laughs> um, I think so, yeah. Sorry to break the, the rhyming rhythm. There, but, um, <laughs> I would say the two question marks over selection in the main, obviously once it became clear on sort of Friday, Saturday that Rob Herring was going to miss out through injury, uh, with Tom Stewart then sort of taking the place that Herring had at the World Cup. The two question marks that you would have had, I suppose, were Nick Timoney and James Hume. Kieran Treadwell. Yeah, to a certain extent, I guess. Um, I know we talked about Treadwell last week again, I think just with the players that were ahead of him and the form of the players that were ahead of him, I think he was always going to be... Difficult for him to get in, and I think you can probably say the same about James Hume. Like I think James Hume has been um, in a really good run of form. Unfortunate with the timing of the injury that cost him the game against Leinster, and then unfortunate in the sense that, well, unfortunate is maybe uh, not the right word, but his performance against Toulouse will be remembered for that penalty reversal uh, f- for the for the shove, unfortunately. Um, so I think once you see the Farrell only named a 34-man squad, which is, of course, only one player more than he took to the World Cup, you're really looking at where did players fall away and you've got injuries and retirements in the shape of Sexton and Keith Earl. So... It was going to be a really difficult squad to get into when it was that small. And like even Nick Timoney, like Nick Timoney has played really, really well of late. And I don't think Timoney's form ever dropped off that much when even when he wasn't getting in the squad. It's just a really difficult area of the squad to get into. But like it must have been a toss of the coin between him and Kane Prendergast as well. He has had a really good season. And there's, you know, there's other players that, there that you can mention as well. So without the squad being much bigger, it was always going to be a really, really tough proposition to break your way in. And sort of, as I said before there, you know, you've got the injuries to Mark Hansen, Jimmy O'Brien, and the retirement of Keith Earls, which is why we've seen so much turnover in the back three. But elsewhere, I mean, it's a, it's a really, really settled squad, which is no bad thing when you look at uh, everybody else. You know, France have their best player going to play sevens. England's captain has taken a step back. Wales squad announcement yesterday appeared to be delayed so that a player could choreograph his announcement to go to the NFL. So, like, <laughs> there's no... It's not a knock to be a settled squad when you look around the place. Like, I'll tell you what, if Six Nations full contact is going to be good this year, I can't wait for next year whenever you have the madness of the week of the 16th, 17th of January and all these squad announcements. Like, the, between well, the, the trailer th- dropped today with uh, Reese Zammett in it. <laughs> yeah, which, which is even more bizarre. Like, if, if you look at 
you know, what all the all the hurdles that we've had to jump to get through, Farrell stepping back, Dupont going to sevens in order to pursue his Olympic dream, Rizamat out of nowhere deciding he's going to go play in the NFL, like. <clears throat> This is wild. Like this, this very is Hollywood, isn't it? It's very I mean, it's, it's almost like whenever uh, Netflix got full swing and then Liv decided to ruin everything. It's like we just hit the jackpot here. F- full contact has to come back for a season two, and it has to be what exactly happened in that second week of uh, sorry, third week now of, of January. Um, but to actually get back get back to the point at hand, um, I think we last week. And I don't want to toot our horn too much, but I think we pretty much called the squad. Like the, the only thing we didn't know was that Herring was injured. So we had Herring in and Stuart coming down to, to train with the team, but like mm-hmm. wasn't a full member of the squad. Well, I wasn't and, injured at that stage because I was talking to him later that day. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that was before his injury. Okay, so we recorded the podcast before he got the injury, so therefore we didn't know that he wasn't going to be available. So therefore I think we're going to be given a bye-ball that we had him in the squad and then didn't uh, <laughs> didn't make it in. Um, but I, th- I think, yeah, the, the only surprising thing for me is that Timoney has leapfrogged Kim Prendergast into the squad. And I don't, I'm not surprised in that uh, I think he deserves it. I think Timoney has been the better back row of the two between the World Cup and now. But just as we said on the podcast last week, I thought Farrell would keep faith with his tried and trusted because he has had Prendergast in the squad. And I don't think he's been... uh, I was going to say bad enough. Like Prendergast hasn't been playing poorly enough, but I didn't think there was enough between Timoney and Prendergast to have Farrell choose Timoney for the squad and not Prendergast. But clearly Timoney has done enough. I thought he was one of the few players who did sort of stand out against Toulouse at the weekend from an Ulster perspective. So uh, maybe that's what swung it in his favour and that he had one more good game uh, at the weekend. But I don't think there's really too many surprises from an Ulster perspective there. I mean, I certainly don't think anybody who hasn't made the squad can have too many gripes that they're not in there and I think that's that's really it like it's, it's not the most exciting Ireland squad from an Ulster perspective that I think we've had in in recent years I would say from anyone's perspective because normally the first thing you do is scroll down to see the uncapped players <laughs> <laughs> the, the we star by their name yeah. and there wasn't any this time so. yeah exactly so Calvin is it good to see Calvin Nash back in the squad because I think he has been very good for Munster um, I know that's probably at the expense of Robert Balakoon, which is not a good thing from an Ulster perspective but I think Nash is a guy who goes about his business really uh, quietly in the background at Munster so nice to see him start against over. France you think? Yeah, I do you actually? Um, I would have Stockdale in there. I just wonder about the natural fit of somebody that's so used to playing on the right wing compared to somebody that's so used to playing on the left wing, you know? Um, I, th- I think it's a lot to throw Nash in there against France. I think that's a massive baptism of fire. Like, when, when was his last international cap? It would have been during it's the a, summer, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, yeah so... <laughs> You know, he hasn't played a significant game of note for Ireland, and to drop him in against a team like France, I think, is a massive step. I would be more inclined to put Stockdale in there, even on his off wing, to have that experience. And just flat out, I think Stockdale's deserved it. I think he's been much, much better this season, and I think he deserves his chance to step back onto the international stage and show that. Well, talking about France and going over the Toulouse game, 
So they are the most successful team in the Champions Cup, five-time victors in the contest, and they're obviously star-studded, I think. A lot of people turned up to Ravenhill just to see Antoine Dupont, uh, any neutral fans, definitely. So is there much more that you guys think Ulster, I suppose, could have done against Toulouse on Saturday night? Um, and are there any, I was talking about how we're so negative on this podcast, any positives to take away from the game? Big pause. Well, the, the, I mean, sorry, positives <laughs> from an Ulster perspective, not just the fact that I really enjoyed watching Toulouse play. Um <laughs> I think it's a it's a combination of both. To be honest, like Toulouse were really really good, but Ulster did things that allowed them to be good. Like Ulster didn't do an awful lot of things well that they had been doing well in recent weeks. Like if you look, like it's a little bit sort of you know apart from that, Miss Lincoln, how was the play? Like they started really well. And they had five minutes of, like, good attacking play, good attacking shape. They looked like they were going in with another sort of tailored game plan, if you like, which is what we've seen in recent weeks, of using pullback passes to almost fragment that Toulouse defensive line and get some of those bigger bodies moving around and hopefully out of shape. And it looked like it was working pretty well, but the attacking shape just got a wee bit wayward through the game and then once you make a mistake to lose on the counter and we sort of saw this with Rassing but not to the same degree like if you make a mistake to lose are going to punish you and to lose at the level that they were playing at really punished an awful lot of Ulster mistakes so yes Toulouse were brilliant, but Ulster had to make those mistakes in the first place to allow Toulouse to capitalise on them, if that makes sense. And, you know, if you think about it, even the third, I think it was the third try, um, there was that many of them, um, The uh, <laughs> like the goal line dropout try, like, you know, an Ulster player said that was the kind of stuff that you wouldn't expect to see out of a schoolboy side. And that's maybe may a step far, but... Um, like that, that as an example was a really, really bad try to concede. And you could see it from so far out. Like you could see Jalanch being allowed to build up this head of steam. And you just sat there thinking, well, this doesn't end well for anybody. And so it proved. And even, you know, the second DuPont try, again, great attacking play from a Toulouse perspective, but it was pretty soft and probably just the defense as a whole, I thought was a a step back from what we'd seen against Leinster that was a really sort of committed, focused performance. And like I'm not I'm not saying that they weren't committed on Saturday, but um there just wasn't the same they did they didn't hit the same levels, basically. And I think Ulster at their best are obviously not as good as Toulouse at their best, but I think Ulster at their best, or Ulster playing better than they played on Saturday, would have made a far better fist of that um, game than they did, despite the fact that, yes, you're watching that and thinking that there is a step between the very, very best teams in Europe, and I'm talking about the three or four best teams in Europe, to where Ulster are now, and we all knew that anyway. Like, that's not... That's, you know, that's not one of the five things that we've learned um, from the game. But I suppose maybe maybe even how apparent that gap was was maybe a shock to some people. 
I, I do wonder how much the and not not to use it as an excuse at all. Like they knew this was going to be the case going in, but the fact that they didn't have a game the week before, I wonder how much that did actually play a factor because it did look like Ulster were a bit unprepared's the wrong word, but just like it, it it looked like they weren't quite continuing that momentum from the Leinster game. As you say, they they started okay, but then once things started to unravel, it just felt like things unraveled very quickly and I do wonder if you had seen Ulster play a game last week if they would have been able to maintain that momentum a little bit better um, but, but like that, I mean that would have been 12 games in 12 weeks you know sat here last week we were probably saying oh it's a real positive for Ulster that they don't have a game and that Toulouse play Leon. Look, me, me, um, the, this Same is with Harlequins this week. Like, you know, we're talking about it probably being a positive for Ulster that Harlequins have a game next week, whereas Ulster don't. Well, look, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not saying it's a positive or a negative. I'm, I'm just wondering how much of an impact it had. You know, maybe it did work in Ulster's favour. Maybe if they had had a game last week, they would have been absolutely <laughs> could have been slaughtered. Like, yeah, this, this is what I'm, this is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying it was a bad thing that Ulster didn't have a game last weekend because it, it might have it might have made absolutely no difference whatsoever uh, at the end of the day I do agree I think Ulster were just beaten by a better team and look I don't think Ulster were dreadful I don't think they were great I don't think they were dreadful I think Toulouse were brilliant and I think you're looking at a team that if they're not going to win this competition they're going to go very very far in this competition and I'm I'm not Nostradamus by saying that but you know I I don't think it's uh, as hard to see that this team is quite comfortably one of the, I would say, like right now I would have Toulouse and Bordeaux as on sort of like another level to everybody else in the competition. You saw what Bordeaux did to Saracens. Like not a lot of teams over the past 10, 15 years have been able to do that to Saracens. Like that took a special performance from Bordeaux and they look to be building something really, really positive there. And I think Toulouse are the ones that they're trying to catch in terms of their consistency. And just, it always mesmerizes me how good Antoine Dupont is. And I could turn this into an Antoine Dupont love-in for the next half an hour, but I'm not going to. But you just forget like how good he is and how excellent his rugby IQ is like the little break down the blind side for what was that their fifth try (laughs) again there's so many tries that you can't remember which one it is but the break he does and then passing back inside it looks like there's absolutely nothing on but he's clearly clued in to see that if I break down the blind side here and if I get on the outside and manage to get the pass back inside. I am going to have a man on my inside. It's not. I don't even think he looks before he makes the pass. He just knows that if he there's obviously a call or something. He either calls for someone to break off with him, but he just knows that there's someone there. And that's the kind of thing that the best teams have. They just have that innate understanding of if my play, if my teammate does this, if I'm here, I'm going to get the pass and we're going to score. Or if my teammate goes down here, if I back him up, we're going to recycle and we're going to have an overlap on the outside or something like that. I just think Toulouse had too much power. They had too much guile. They had an Antoine Dupont and they were just better than Ulster. And I think, yeah, you've got to look at this from an Ulster perspective and say, well, that's the level that we've got to get to. And I think over the last few weeks, we've seen positive steps you know we we've seen whenever racing came into town ulster had a game plan to counteract them and they pulled it off and they had a good performance 
Connaught was another win, but we'll, we'll put it into the, you know, they kept it going. You know, one of the things that we weren't seeing from Ulster was consistency of backing up performances. They managed to get another win and then they go down to Dublin and they get another win against Leinster, which was a good win and rightly should be praised. But then you come up against Toulouse at full strength and you just suddenly get a realisation of, well, this is the level that we're going to have to hit if we're going to win silverware. And maybe it's not a bad thing that Ulster got a reminder of that whenever they were sort of coming off a bit of a high and people were saying, well, maybe this is Ulster have turned a corner. Maybe just getting that bit of a reality check of this is the level that we need to be at if we're going to win silverware isn't a terrible thing for this team because... I don't think Ulster are as far away as everyone thinks they are. They've got a good way to go in order to be at Toulouse's level. Like, don't, they're not, you know, one or two changes away from being at the Champions Cup winning level. But I don't necessarily think they're as far away as maybe everyone thinks they are. So getting an up-close and personal look at what the best team or one of the best teams in Europe is like... I think might do them a bit of good. I think as well, it's just interesting because you were saying about how they kind of looked unprepared because Dan McFarland said afterwards um, that it was really tough. And like a direct quote, he said, I felt for our guys. I thought a lot of effort went into that. A lot of effort went into preparation. Do you think, Johnny, because you were actually at Ravenhill reporting on it, what was the general feeling afterwards? Um, Because Toulouse did end. They were in a three-game winning streak. They obviously had that sort of shock um, amazing one point win over Leinster at the start of the year. Was it as devastating, or like was it worse because they were in a winning streak? Like, so was it, is it worse whenever you know that a team is better than you and you've put your best on the line, but it's still sort of like your efforts are futile, or is that yeah. actually more comforting if you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do know what you mean. I think there's obviously an evident amount of disappointment and an evident amount of upset to lose at home, to lose a big game in Europe. It certainly wasn't the angriest that I've ever seen anyone in post-match, you know. Um, I would say certainly after a loss where they should win, like the Edinburgh game, you know, I would say the mood was much worse. But I also understand exactly what you mean in the sense that if Ulster played their best and Toulouse played their best, it's pretty obvious that Toulouse are going to win. I wrote a piece today in the paper, you know, just looking at, I suppose, the profiles of the two squads and how the bigger budget afforded, the bigger budgets afforded to the biggest teams, most successful teams, means that they are now buying in size, essentially, that Ulster don't produce locally and can't afford to buy in the key positions. Like, Yes, they've got Stephen Kitchoff, but in an ideal world, you're not spending that money on a loose edge, you're spending that money on a second row or a back row or I suppose maybe a tight head. Um, so it's how you cut your cloth. It's what you have to do to counteract that. And having asked Dan McFarland about it on Saturday, I asked Roddy Grant about it on Monday. And the point that he made, and look, this is all in in the piece, um, if anybody wants to go and read it, um, is that just your margin for error becomes so much smaller. And that's, I suppose, where Ulster are, or what Ulster are dealing with. It is, to an extent, an uneven playing field because Ulster aren't going to be able to go and import the likes of a Mavaka or a Mifo, you know, 
because one, they can't afford them, <laughs> and two, they're not allowed to just go and recruit. As you know, it's not an open recruitment. We all know that the RFU is going to um, have a big say in the positions and the players that you can go after. So, yeah, like Neve used the word futile, and if you're looking at it, like it's 25 years since 1999, you know, and I think as unlikely as that triumph was then, I think a team from outside that cadre of well-financed super teams, it's going to be much more surprising to me if we see an upset winner at any time in the future because I think just the way that the game has gone in the last couple of years, like players with size but with athleticism allied to that size, it becomes so important. You know, it's the sort of, you look at the run that Will Skelton went on um, in this competition, whether it be with Saracens or La Rochelle, and it's like, you know, players like that are really what's going to decide who wins this competition at the sharp end. I know Ulster aren't at the sharp end, and look, yes, the draw's terrible, competition format's bad, but also should still obviously be in the last 16. I'm not advocating that they shouldn't be in the 16 best te- teams in Europe, you know. Um, but I think it f- becomes way more difficult for any of those teams um, that don't have... Because as much as we all talk about DuPont and he, he's he's five foot nine and yes, he's amazing. But like, to me, the striking thing about that game was I suppose the power of Toulouse. And uh, I mentioned those two other guys that would throw launch into that Um they were all really, really good on the night as well. Just to give a bit of context to to sort of the the money aspect, Toulouse Toulouse is twenty three at the weekend. Eight of them were homegrown, as in came through the Toulouse academy and are now part of the Toulouse squad. Surprisingly, Dupont is not actually one of those. No, he's he, cast. Yeah, he's cast. People always forget uh, that. Yeah, myself included. But you know. Eight of their 23, that's not even half of their team, is coming through their SBAR system. Whereas for Ulster, I mean, I could, I could go through it quickly here, but you'd say at least 15, 16. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of going through very quickly, but Kitchoff, uh, Marty Murr, uh, it, it could take a while here. Um but you know, like if if you if you go through Ulster squad, you can probably count on one hand, one and a half hands, how many of their players didn't actually come through Ulster's academy. Now they're not all Ulster born and bred, but you know, Ulster for the majority of their players have had to rely on them coming up through their system. They don't have the money to go out and take Leinster's best players or. Monsters' best players, mainly because the Irish system obviously does not work like that. But, you know, theoretically, if the Irish system worked the same way as the French system, Ulster wouldn't just be able to go and buy Leinster's players or Monsters' players or Connacht players. It's, you know, so that's money does talk and it it is frustrating in that way in that you know that Ulster are always going to be up against it. 
you are always going to be battling against these French teams with massive budgets. And it's not to say that Ulster can't do it. They beat Racing, who have an exponentially bigger budget than they do. And you look at the names that are on that squad that Ulster will probably never be able to attract um, besides one of them. You know, they bring in Kitchoff, but, you know, they probably don't have the money to go out and buy three Stephen Kitchoffs. They only have the money to go out and buy one. And it's just, it's the position and the profile as well. You know, I think that's a huge, a huge part of it. Yes, like Ulster have a global superstar and there's plenty of other teams um, that would look at Ulster with a lot of envy over, Mm. not even just Kitschoff, but being able to bring in a day of years as well. But it's just, it's being able to bring in those, I suppose, what what would be termed athletic specimens like the mm. guys that are just of a size that we in Ireland don't tend mm-hmm. to, to ever be and then obviously you can go down you know you can go down a rabbit hole with this and go through the fact that so many of the best athletes in Ireland do produce aren't rugby players because they're GEA players mm-hmm. and um but it but you even look at Len, uh, sorry at Toulouse's squad at the weekend. Like they spent big money to bring Nipo Lalala over, All Blacks international tight head, and he's sitting on their bench behind uh, Dorian Aldegheri. They've bought, they've paid massive money to bring Jack Willis over from uh, Wasps whenever they went under, and he's sitting on their bench. Santiago Chocabares, Argentine international centre, big money spent on him. He's sitting on the bench like. It's it's incredible the amount of money they can spend on these athletes, and they're not even deeming them to be, you know, first team. Whereas Ulster pay big money for Stephen Kitchoff, and quite rightly he's going to start all their big games. But it's not even a question that he's going to start their his, their big games. It's it's a must start their big games. Whereas these guys that Toulouse are signing, it's like, well, they're going to boost our squad, but we actually probably have a guy here who's even better than them already. It's psychologically draining too, whenever you see your like legs are wrecked from playing so many minutes and then you see someone like that coming off the bench and you're like, oh, Aye, and here, got here fresh we go again. Yeah, so <laughs> probably puts their heads away too. But um, coming up against Ulster this weekend is Harlequins and the province are going to go to London to face them. They took nothing from Saturday night's game and that means their hopes of progression uh, progressing through the competition rests completely on Saturday's trip. So what are your previews or predictions for this weekend? They have to win. Like I said, like, and to, to be honest, I think that actually makes it better in that it's more There's, exciting for fans, anyway. Well, it's more—it's more, it's more it's exciting for, for people fans trying to write copy about uh, <laughs> whether they've come through or not. That's the most important thing from our perspective. But yeah, like I, I think it's actually obviously you would rather Ulster were qualified. You know, it's, it's not like we're sitting here saying it's a good thing they lost to Toulouse because now they know they have to win. Um, that's obviously not the way we're looking at it. But, because there was a possibility that obviously I'm just looking at this before the game, and they would have the way results went, they would be through if that had beat Toulouse. Mm-hmm. But there was a way just whenever I was looking at it last week, there was a way that this game could have been rendered a dead rubber. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's now the complete opposite. But uh. Yeah, but it really sharpens the focus this week of you when you're in. It's it's not like Ulster are going to be five points ahead with a penalty and they're wondering, do we need a, a, another try for a try bonus? And that might be the difference. It's just you need to get the win kick the ball off the pitch and you're done so yeah because uh, there was also that possibility that they were going to have to win with a bonus point and by 33 points yeah so like everyone 
can put the, or twenty two points. Everybody can put the abacus away and just be like, also a, need to win if they're going to go yeah. through. And like I'll I'll let, I'll let Johnny talk about this because I know you did your column on this, but you know the, the fact that Racing play Cardiff on Saturday means that. You know, it's 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 not even that Ulster can lose this game and they'll think Cardiff will do them a favour. They're not like Cardiff haven't won a game and uh, they're going to Racing. It's not even like they're playing <laughs> Racing at home. It's it's but, in Paris. So yeah, I mean that's that's the flaw of the format. The fact yeah. that Racing now <laughs> also went through last year having only won one game. But the fact that Racing could go through having only beaten Cardiff and been beaten by Ulster when Ulster don't get to play Cardiff obviously shows that the format just Isn't fit for doesn't purpose. work. Exactly. It's 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 not the kind of format that you can have in what is supposed to be your top competition. It's just, it's a silly thing that has been necessitated by the fact that the powers that be cannot all get around the same table and agree upon an eight-week tournament. Like I, I, Sorry, I, a nine-week tournament. I still cannot fathom why they changed... The original format. Sorry, I, I know, I know why they did it. But what is wrong with that format of six groups of four? You play the other three teams, three or home and away, and the top team goes through, and this second team might go through. Like bring back the classic Heineken Cup. Well, they just need to bring back a round robin. Like, but obviously the talk being that um, rather than see it go back to nine, there are clubs out there that want to see it cut to seven, and the knock-on effect for that of well, just me moaning about the competition, but also the lack of a restoration of a third home game and the revenue knock-on um, that that has. And, you know, you hear talk that there's some teams that want fewer games because that would mean they'd have to pay fewer players. And the whole thing's uh, just a mess, really, because there's so many different competing interests. Obviously, you have the French focus on the domestic league, the English focus, uh, um, I suppose, on the domestic league as well, although not to the same degree. It just means that whenever you need, I suppose, everyone to come together and find a pathway forward that works, you don't get it. And instead, you get this really like quite silly format um, that is, I suppose, meant to be a compromise, but ends up being the worst of both worlds because you have a competition format that doesn't make sense, that turns people off. But... I mean, even from a French or English perspective, the competition still takes up too long for their for their liking. So nobody's happy, essentially. As a whole, have there ever been like I suppose because you're talking about what the different teams want, um, and in different countries, but has there ever like been surveys and what the fans want? Like the fans quite, um, loudly sort of vocalise their opposition to the format. Well, I think, and it's an interesting point on the back of Saturday being a sellout in the sense that there were no tickets available but not a sellout in the sense of there were empty seats the, the capacity being full yeah. uh, but anyway uh, that's another story that's for another time yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was for last week um, you know I think and yes there were transport strikes and yes we're in a cost of living crisis and it was Baltic and, uh, yes all these caveats <laughs> that you have to put in with all these like the fact that they didn't sell out the Rousing game and the fact that they hadn't sold out the La Rochelle game last year before it got moved. Like, in times gone by, it would have been a given that these games would have been sold out. I think even, it's very anecdotal, but I think there would have been a lot more buzz and a lot more talk about the games build. Even this week, like this, obviously the Six Nations squad was out and then we had the Kingspan news and 
this side and the other, but, you know, in, say, 10 years ago, if Ulster had, like, a must-win Heineken Cup pool decider, like, I think they would have felt like there was a lot more buzz about the week than, maybe it's just me, maybe it is because it's just cold, I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's really been there in the way that it would have been in pa- in the past, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, in other Ulster-related news, the province are hunting a new sponsor after the news that their long-running agreement with Kingspan will come to an end in the summer of 2025, so that's next year. Johnny, how sort of important is it that Ulster now go, because the thing was, I can't remember who they had before Kingspan, um, how important is it that they do get a good financial deal um, and I suppose are there any sponsors that are being rumoured or that you could think of that would be a good fit? Is there anything to be said for getting Belfast Telegraph back on the jersey? <laughs> it's been a Belt while. Rugby. Yeah, yeah, we should sponsor. Yeah. I, I, um, I feel like that's maybe a little bit above our pay grade. Uh, but conflict can, of can, interest for we, this podcast. Everything <laughs> in here is above my favourite. Um, yeah, it's massively important because you know, we just had a conversation about, um, well, sorry, every conversation that we've had so far in this podcast, there has been some mention of finances and the undercurrent of uh, the need to drive revenue. So sponsorship is a massive part of that. And Kingspan has been a big slice of Ulster's commercial revenue for, as you say, a long time. It's also been the name on the stadium for yeah. the last 10 years. Does That's... anyone actually call it that the way? I, I, everyone always just calls it Ravenhill. I call it Spanners. The, oh, well. the Spanners. The Gooners. Um, <laughs> the Gooners uh, and the Spanners. Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't, but I don't think a lot of people do. Taxi drivers. You know, taxi drivers tend to get confused if you say Ravenhill because then they take you to the Ravenhill Road rather than the ground. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the whole naming rights to stadiums things is all a bit icky anyway, really, isn't it? I but know. um Again, you, you, that's another story for different yeah. days. So commercialized. You, you, can end, you can end up getting stadiums that are like Cinch Stadium at Franklin's Gardens or Mattioli Woods Stadium at yeah, Welford, Welford Road. Road. No, like, nobody's calling them those things. They, it's interesting, I suppose, in a rugby sense, that one of the real success stories of rebranding a stadium is the Aviva. Because a lot yeah. of people say the Aviva rather than Lansdowne Road. Now that, I suppose, because it was rebuilt, has the feel of a new stadium. Um, and Aviva, it just has a ring that I think too. <laughs> it's, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's easier to say than Lansdowne Road as well. Um, and it, it really is a new stadium because it's so different to the old Lansdowne Road. Like I, I never even had the pleasure of going to a game at the old Lansdowne Road. So all I've ever known is the Aviva. But you know. You never I, had the I would, rattle of the of the Lewis going behind you. No, no I, I never did. I just had the soft hum of it going by <laughs> as uh, as I walk around to the area. So, like f- for me, like I I can't even even consider calling it Lansdowne Road because I never knew what was there beforehand. But even like looking at pictures, it's so so different. So I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Well, sorry, I know giant interrupting you. Um, going to talk about I don't know any viable sponsors you think that could come in, but. I know, like in recent GA news, uh, Cork Parky Cave is now being bought by Super Value, and it's going to be called. <laughs> I think what is it, what the Super Super Value Park is yeah. it just Something like that. or I, Park Super Value, park, which it will it will never be called that. But I think it's just you just wonder like anyone could sort of come in and swoop in now and take over Ravenhill and call it something. And I know I know that uh, 
Connet have sold the rights to the sports ground as well to Dexcom, which is a an American company. So it's going to be called like Dexcom Stadium or Dexcom Park or something. That will always be the sports ground to me. Yeah. Right. The, so, no, the number of times we have sat on that wooden press bench at the back of the clan stand or whatever it's called, it's the sports ground, always. Thinking like Eurospar, really, Eurospar Stadium. Or, I'm just thinking all these like shops now that could come in. But be Yeah. The thing is, you'll have all those people complaining about the stadium changing name. It's like, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't, yeah. this isn't real. Give it back to Kingspan or whatever, well, like, like, but um, they'll. I don't know who will be really saying that. Well, no, but you, you'll get used to it. Yeah. Like, it, it'll be weird for maybe like a, a month or so, and then eventually it'll just become the. The older that I get, the that... more laid back I become about these things, right? <laughs> so while 10 years ago this really annoyed me, in the 10 years since, both personally and professionally, I've come to a big realization. You can call the stadium whatever you want. Yeah. Like, it's your choice what you mm. call the stadium. I, both in print, on here and whatever, continue to call it Ravenhill. So the point of the matter, the nub of the matter, is how much money that Australia Yeah, yeah well, that's what I was going to say. Like, do you think, because of the cost of living crisis and everything too, they're obviously going to be looking more than they had with Kingspan too. Um, I don't know, are there any like big hitters that you know of looking in? Just I suppose there was one company that was talked about before these conversations. Like one thing that people will, I suppose, latch on to is the fact that the writing has sort of been on the wall here for two years. Like I was thinking about it today. It has been a full, well, more just, just over two years that we've been writing about this. We've been talking about this. So you would imagine that a good amount of due diligence has been done here. And despite the fact that, you know, the talk of the, the possibility that there had been there of extending the Kingspan deal. But, you know, when you talk about the cost of living crisis and the impact that's had on ticket sales, you talk about just reduced revenue in general, you think about the very real possibility that in, you know, the CVC money that essentially kept the show on the road during covid their share of the ERC is taken off the top. The rest of it is divided. It'll soon be divided into more. So it's become so much more expensive to run a rugby team for all those reasons that we've outlined, even energy and things yeah. like that. You know, it's become so much more expensive and you have to offset that somehow. And we don't think that they can offset that by increasing ticket prices because we've seen that we keep going back to this zebra half price sellout. We've seen that people are responsive to the price of tickets. So, what do you do? Where do you get, where do you generate the money from? Obviously, if it's not going to be ticket prices, then sponsorship is the most obvious way in which you can offset some of these losses that you're making. So, it's a regardless of everything else and everything else that we've written about and everything else that we've talked about over the last two years with regards to this particular sponsorship deal. It is a massive, massively important deal to maximise from an Ulster perspective because if you look at the accounts from last year and you listen to, uh, I suppose, the mood music for this year, like, you have to make every pound count and that's going to be a big big task in this environment 
and Ulster are not going to be short on people who want to sponsor them. Like if you You've already thrown our hat in there. Exactly. We we've already like I'm gonna put a pound on the table right now. <laughs> that's our starting bid. Someone match that. But uh, on on a serious note, like Ulster are probably the professional sporting team in Northern Ireland that is the best supported and publicized. Like Ulster have twenty odd games a year that are shown on either the BBC, TNT Sports, uh, via play, uh, wherever they happen to be playing their their rugby that particular week. So there's that reach, which the Belfast Giants don't get. They've got a stadium that they're getting 10,000 people in at least per home game that Irish League, Irish League is not, get. not getting. They've got more games a year than Northern Ireland have. Mm -hmm. So in terms of maximising your potential reach and potential exposure, Ulster are the team that you're probably going to want to go to. So the gear as well, like it's yeah, it's uh, everywhere. It's Adam, under... did you own the marketing team for them there to get the sponsors <laughs> you've, in? Uh, you've missed your calling, but like, <laughs> but, uh, so, so you see, like you see more gear, Ulster gear, than anything else. Correct, in, and you, you know. Actually, being in Bath recently, Bath was quite similar, but you don't see that in a lot of places. So that's, you know, your brand, your logo as well on every piece of Ulster. Well, it, it won't be cookery. Um, well, well, well if, if, you're, if you are a rugby fan in Ulster, there is a very, very high chance that you're an Ulster fan and therefore you will own some kind of Ulster merchandise. Whereas if you're a football fan in Northern Ireland, you could support Linfield, Glentoran, Crusaders, Cliftonville, Premier, Glenavon, so there's a much <laughs> more, let's not go too far, <laughs> there's a much more diverse market in terms of That's who true. people are going to pick up. If you are a rugby fan in Northern Ulster, Ireland. in Northern Ireland, in the nine counties of Ulster, you are 95% of a chance going to be an Ulster fan. So you are then associating yourself with a brand that is widely supported throughout the majority of Northern Ireland. I know that, you know, the reach maybe doesn't quite extend the whole length and breadth of the province, but for the majority of rugby fans, they are going to be associated with Ulster rugby. Yeah, Diaspora too. Mm -hmm. You know, like yeah. everyone that's in moved to London, like, well, sorry, moved anywhere, but I think like even with like the reach of our, the work that we do, like you'll always be surprised how much of it is read in England and places further afield. Like, mm -hmm. You've convinced me, Adam. Get that, uh, get that picture written up. And if anyone's uh, listening that works for Ulster Rugby, get the free merch going this way. Once yeah. you, <laughs> but is it, I think it should be Tato. Tato. <laughs> I think we should rename the stadium the Tato Bowl. Tato Bowl. Oh, oh that'd be goodness. great. Do you know what it is too? Like it has to be. Cause I remember because I'm from Throne. I remember whenever Throne GA had the no harm hunky dories because I like the crisps, but the god awful hunky dories logo on the Throne jersey just did oh. not suit. So it needs. I feel like a Tato. Logo would actually look good, but as, long, as long as it's a naughty Mr. Tito, yeah, like so yeah, that, that, oh, that would be. be key. But see, now I'm thinking off the back of the Tito, but bowl. then you know, it's a nine, it's a nine county organization, so they'll have to switch around. Now I'm thinking off the back of the Tito, bowl. what about the Curry's bowl? Oh, 
It doesn't have the same local appeal, but I, I understand where <laughs> you're coming from. Everyone keep, the, keep their eyes peeled anyway. This, this, this is my peeled. point, you know. <laughs> Didn't mean that. Ulster are not going to struggle for companies, firms, organisations that want to throw their money and their sponsorship behind them. It's about maximising that return and that can be massive for all those things that we've talked about during this podcast. I'm a get for that as well because like Kingspan, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's on record that they had put an awful lot of money into like grassroots rugby mm-hmm. as well, you know. So there is... A lot like if you can find someone who is willing to give you that financial backing but also has that passion for rugby and I've look I'm I'm not you know this is probably for we, we maybe could get someone from the business team to come in and do a podcast with us at some point to discuss this but somebody who's going to have that rugby desire as well mm-hmm. behind it in order to not only maximize the financial backing that is being put into the uh, organization as a whole but also wants to see the rugby side of things developed like Kingspan were doing then there is a way to significantly maximize what you're trying to do and that's probably the bigger question behind Ulster not who is going to sponsor them well so I suppose who's going to sponsor them but more what they're providing because yeah. you could have maybe 10 different who's it's what is going to be coming out of this sponsorship because there's so much could be done with the sponsorship that they need to try and see weighing up whether, you know, are we just going to take the money Mm -hmm. or are we going to try and take the money, maybe lesser money, but, you know, something else. It might be the same money, but a certain amount of it is earmarked for something like that. So that's probably the bigger question behind who else you're going to get as their next sponsor. It's not it's not just the who in terms of who the company are. It's more the what that this company is going to provide in terms of sponsorship. I can see endless, endless columns and analysis pieces <laughs> coming from this in the future. And to catch up with all of that and all of the current uh comment and columns and articles that Adam and Johnny and all the sports team are doing remember to visit belfasttelegraph.co.uk or pick up the paper Belfast Telegraph newspaper or the Sunday Life and we will be back next week to review this common weekend's games and preview the future and all the other rugby news in between. Thanks for listening.